Hello, and welcome to the 28th episode of Till Death Do Us Part. I'm Daniel. And I'm Melissa. How's it going? Good. You doing good? I'm here. Feeling good? Yep. All right. Well, let's start this off with a shout out to one of our 11 listeners. Sweet. This is from Brent Wood X. What's up, Brent? Hi, Brent. And the title is Thumbs Up. And this is very short and sweet. And I think you're going to love it, Daniel. All right. Adult aerobics makes me laugh every time. There we go. I think that's a hit. That's it. That was it. We if, want him over if, with adult aerobics. If nothing else, if we could just get adult aerobics introduced into everyone's lifestyle and daily activities, then there you go. Yes. All right, Daniel, you got some factoids for me? So I heard a couple of interesting little tidbits that got my got me thinking, and that is weird ways people are buried. Oh, nice! Um, after they were deceased, not not alive, not a not live burial. Hopefully, hopefully after they died. And there's a lot, and it's pretty fascinating. Awesome! I'm stoked. I'm excited for this one. So there are things to look forward to when you die, and that is try and come up with a creative way to be buried. I love it. Yeah. Um, so I just came up with five that were kind of cool. And um, I don't know if you've heard of them before, but I'm going to start off with Whitney Houston. Um, yes, I am a child of the 80s. She unfortunately drowned in her bathtub in February of 2012. Mm-hmm. So she was buried in a gold-lined coffin. Did you know that? I had no idea. It was worth tens of thousands of dollars. Good for just her. Just the coffin. Good for her. Um, she also was buried with over 400000 in jewels and clothing. Should that be public knowledge? Well, I don't think you can get to it. Well, in that... Yeah, it's public knowledge. It's, it's on the internet. Okay. Well, and I'm if it's surprised... on the internet, it's accurate. <laughs> I'm surprised nobody's dug it up. I don't know. $400,000. I mean, come on now. So anyway, I guess, uh, like they say, you can't take it with you. And so she kind of did, though. But that's what the Egyptians did. They buried all their their most valuable stuff with them? Yeah, like the pharaohs. Oh, okay. Yeah, they even buried their cats with them. Nice. Yeah. The neighbor's cats. (laughs) Hopefully it was their cat. Mr. David Keim Jr. He died in 2013 at the ripe old age of 88. Nice. This cool guy loved Burger King. Oh. He loved it so much that he requested that the entire funeral procession go through, and this was in Pennsylvania, the Manchester Township, Pennsylvania, Burger King, and get a Whopper Junior. So they had pre-purchased 40 Whopper Juniors, and everyone went through and got one. That's cool. And then they put a Whopper Junior in his casket with him and buried him. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I thought that was Yeah, that's neat. So I got this from Genealogy Bank, Mr. Reuben John Smith. Mm-hmm. He died in 1899 in Amesbury, Massachusetts, at the Mount Prospect Street Cemetery. Mm-hmm. So he had an expensive marble sarcophagus built and then had a custom reclining oak chair <laughs> and table built. And they seated him on it after he died. And then the table held his pipe and newspaper and checkerboard. Nice. That's the way to be buried right there. 
He wore a fine black suit and felt hat. He was transported on a wagon pulled by two black horses to the cemetery. And then the tomb had an iron door, which was sealed up after they put him in and had a key. And then they purposely got rid of the key. Wow. He also set aside $500. Now, this was back in 1899 to help pay for the upkeep of his um, tomb. Okay. And then he set aside a large, they didn't, I couldn't figure out how much amount of money for any female that would stay the night with his corpse by the tomb. And uh, he never had any takers. No one came forward to do that. All right. Well, I would like to know the sum of money that you would get if you did that. And I think that that's not weird. I mean, you just you go and sleep next to the tomb or you have to sleep next to his body in the recliner. I don't know. Okay. I couldn't figure that out because they said they sealed it up. But maybe they sealed it up because no one would come forward at that time. Nobody stay the night with him on his first night of departure. I would have done it. Is that weird? I don't know. I don't I, think I mean, that's you weird. Could just keep them company. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And they said they re- they never could figure out where all of his money came from. So oh. it was pretty cool. Anyway, nice. have you heard of this guy? He's called Bella Lugosi. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to suck your blood. <laughs> he was born in 1882 and mm-hmm. died in 1956. Mm-hmm. Um, starred in the 1931 film Dracula. Yes. And he, he did the uh, Broadway production as well. Oh, mm-hmm. cool. He was buried with a replica of his Count Dracula cape. Oh, that's awesome. Which is fitting because I believe in the movie, he's laying in a casket with his cape on, right? Yes. And he knew what the role was that made him a star. So there you go. So he went that's out. so cool. The way he got his stardom. Yeah, that's awesome. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. Sandra West. She was a widowed millionaire. Her husband was a oil guy. Lots of money. Mm-hmm. She died in 1977 at the age, ripe old age of 37. Oh. Unfortunately, from a drug overdose. She was oh. beautiful. I was looking at pictures of her. She's pretty attractive. Oh, that's sad. She was buried in her blue 1964 Ferrari. <laughs> With the seat slightly reclined, so she was comfortable. Oh, my god! They built a whole huge tomb, put the car in it with her in the car, and then they dug a, I think they said it was 19 feet long by like 10 feet wide and 9 feet deep hole at the cemetery and lowered the whole situation down in there. That's awesome. And I think that's pretty cool because a 1964 Ferrari is a really cool car. Now, were, was this her dying wish? or yep. Okay. So she had like a, That's what she a will or yeah. you know, last will and testament at 37. Smart girl. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It seemed like most of these people put a lot of thought into dying. That's great. So, um, yeah. I think it's kind of cool. I mean, you know, if nothing else, you get to go the way you want to go. And Would put- you want to be buried in your 69 Chevelle? Probably. Okay. No, that'd be a waste of the car. That would be a waste of the car. I it, would tell you that I was going to bury you in it, but then I probably wouldn't. I want to I wanna go like most people, and that is I want to be cremated, and then I want you to spread my ashes in the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland. <laughs> Don't say that out loud. Because that's... You can get in trouble. They You <laughs> can get banned from Disneyland for I'd doing already that. be dead. No, I could get banned. This is oh, about okay. me, darling. Gotcha. Me. <laughs> All right. 
As long as I die peacefully in my sleep, like my grandpa. Yes. Not screaming in horror like his passengers. <laughs> so, you know, that's fine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway, that's all I got. Oh, I like that one. All right. You're welcome. I like that one. That reminds me of my grandma, who always told me that she wanted to be buried with her big opal. And I said, hell no. That's my opal when you die. And I will open up your coffin and rip it off of your neck. And guess who has the opal? Me. Do you really? Yes. I didn't bury her with it. Oh, okay. No, I told her I wasn't going to. And then she laughed at me thinking I was lying. And no, I wasn't lying. I did not bury her with that opal. Sorry, Grandma. Good job. She still hasn't haunted me. She told me she was going to haunt me, but I haven't seen her. So, All right. Well, that was a test. (laughs) It was a test. I failed. I failed. No, I mean, it was a test by you to see... If ghosts are real? If ghosts are real. If anybody was going to come back as a ghost, it would be my grandma. That's true. Yeah. And I haven't seen her, so maybe tonight. All right. Make sure I wear clothes to bed. All right. Good idea. (laughs) That was great, babe. That was really fun. All right. Thanks for that one. Yep. Daniel. Yep. You ready for my case? All right, go ahead. <laughs> this is the case of Jeremy and Juline Simcoe. Okay. On Wednesday, November 18th, 2009, around 6 a.m., a call came into the local 911 call center. The woman on the other end of the line was hysterically screaming that someone had shot her husband and that she believed the intruder was still in the residence. Police and emergency medical services were dispatched immediately to a farmhouse in the lakeside community of Vermilion, Ohio. When officers arrived, the sun was just beginning to rise, casting a warm glow over the rural property. The officers made their way up to the front door, but it was locked. After unsuccessfully trying to kick down the front door, The officers then went around to the back door and saw that the screen was shut but unlocked and the back door was wide open. Guns drawn, they made their way inside. It was still very dark in the home, but the officers were able to clear the first level. Making their way up to the second level, with guns still drawn, the officers continued to announce their presence but were receiving no response in return. Stepping foot on the landing, they saw a door with light beaming out from underneath. Officers approached cautiously and again announced their presence. The door slowly began to open. A woman peeked out through the crack and realized it was the police. She opened the door fully and officers were shocked by her appearance. 31-year-old Juline Simcoe was wrapped in a towel covered in blood. An officer asked if she was hurt, to which she replied no, but her husband was. Juline pointed to the side of the bed, and there on the floor and lying on his back was the naked body of her husband, 36-year-old Jeremy Simcoe. Juline was pleading for the officers to help her husband, but they quickly realized that whatever had happened to Jeremy that morning had been fatal. Backup officers continued searching the home for the intruder, but never found anything. Very little had been disturbed, which was quite unusual, really. Hmm. (laughs) Okay, so she's naked 
wearing a towel covered in blood. Yes. Okay, and he's naked. And he's naked. All right. Lying on the side of the bed on his back. Gotcha. Okay, now I got a picture in my head. Mm-hmm. All right. Julene Nick was born and raised in Northern Ohio. Julene was very smart and always part of the Honor Society. According to friends and family, Julene was extremely shy, very kind, and seemingly happy. But appearances can be deceiving. Julene's father had spent time in prison for sexually assaulting her when she was young. Oh, no. Yeah. Julene's mom divorced her dad while he was in prison and moved she and Julene to Lorraine County, Ohio. A couple years after the move, Julene's mom remarried. Julene gained not only a wonderful bonus dad, but also a bonus little brother. They were the picture of a loving and normal family. With a new father, Julene never spoke about her old one, which is awesome. Yeah. In the summer of 1997, a few weeks after Julene graduated from high school, the 18-year-old Julene met the 23-year-old Jeremy Simcoe. Jeremy was a childhood friend of Julene's current boyfriend. There was an immediate attraction. Jeremy was five years older than Julene, had a steady job as a tree trimmer and arborist, was a hard worker and a man's man. Good job, guy. <laughs> man's man. A man's man. He loved to hunt, fish, and do anything that involved being in the outdoors. Jeremy was also described as aggressive, dominant, outspoken, and had quite the temper. Jeremy had even been engaged at the time he and Julene met, but had called off the wedding days after meeting her. Oh, wow. Julene had forgotten to end her current relationship, though. Yeah. It happens. Yeah, there's no yeah. sense in just uh, stopping it. You don't yeah. know what's going to happen. Her high school boyfriend found she and Jeremy in a precarious situation at a mutual friend's house. They never spoke again. Oh, boy. Yeah. Now that the couple was official, they became inseparable. Jeremy helped Julene come out of her shell and Julene softened Jeremy's edges and helped him to calm his anger. Kind of. Julene was very proud of the fact that Jeremy had only ever slapped her once. But she slapped him back, and he never touched her again. Oh, okay. Well, that's fair. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> People are crazy. As long as they trade blows, right? and then it's equal. Ugh. Only a few months into their relationship, they started a business together. Simcoe Tree Service. Jolene was Jeremy's very first employee. She would help on the ground, hauling branches, and working the chipper. On September 4th, 1999, the couple made it official and were married. They bought an old fixer-upper farmhouse on two acres and began restoring the three-level home back to its original glory. The house featured a first and second story and a loft on the third floor. There was a barn on the property that served as a place to store their job equipment. The property also backed up to a beautiful 42-acre parcel of land that they did not own but would use to hunt and camp on. Uh, that sounds super cool. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, just go out to your backyard with a tent. Yeah, except for having to fix up a giant, huge house. It sounds like a lot of work. Right, but if you own a business and you don't travel, 
and you know you're like home yeah i mean that might be kind of cool that's true yeah <laughs> a while after buying the home the 42 acres went on the market but the price was steep and the couple didn't have the means to purchase the property at that time after finishing the major construction on the house jeremy and julene began trying for a family after a few years they were finally pregnant so I guess in the tree business, you can say that they branched out. They were trying to branch out. Right. Yes. Okay. Jeremy and Julene were overjoyed with the news, but that joy wouldn't last. A little after three months along, Julene miscarried. Oh, bummer. I know. The couple never got pregnant again. Uh-oh. I know. In 2009, almost 10 years after they were married, they received some good news. The selling price on the 42 acres of land had dropped significantly, and they could finally make an offer. But two days before Jeremy's death, the Simcoes were told that due to their bad credit and the constant late payments for their bills, the loan application was denied for the property. Ouch. Not only was the couple hiding deep financial trouble from everyone around them, but Jeremy and Julene were also hiding a dirty little secret. There it is. Here we go. <laughs> For the small town police force in Vermilion, Ohio, a homicide was a crime they were not accustomed to. The last homicide being in 1995, 14 years before Jeremy's murder. That's a pretty good record. That is. Yeah. After closer inspection of Jeremy's body, it was determined that someone had shot Jeremy in the back of the head at point-blank range. He died instantly. I would assume so. Julene was removed from the home and taken to the local hospital around 7.45 a.m. She was being treated for shock. Officers began surveying the property. They noticed all the top-notch security measures that had been put in place around the house, barn, and outlining areas. The first thing they noticed was the mechanical gate that blocked access to their driveway and property. A sensor on their driveway that was connected to speakers in the house and in the barn that would emit a loud tone when a vehicle triggered the sensor. A security camera on the front of the house that pointed towards the driveway. A security camera on the back of the house that was aimed toward the barn. Each door on the first floor of the home had a sensor that was connected to speakers and would emit three beeps in rapid succession each time a door was opened. There were two speakers for the door sensors, one on the first floor and one by the couch on the third floor loft. The Simcoes also owned four big dogs that were, that were described as vicious and very alert at all times. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> am, I, am I building it for you? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess you can't be too careful. Uh, no. The dogs would bark at anyone who approached the property. Each dog was chained to its own doghouse at night. Each doghouse was, was strategic. I can't say this word. Each doghouse was... <laughs> Each doghouse was strategically placed around the perimeter of the property. Jeremy and Julene also put up no trespassing signs all around the property, along with a sign for their security company, even though their home security system was inactive. What? Mm-hmm. They did all that, and then they have yeah. an inactive 
security system. Yeah, they probably couldn't pay that bill on time, I think. But they put all that stuff up. I know. All right. But the doors would still chime when opened. They also owned several guns and each had their concealed carry permits. Okay. They stored most of their guns under the front stairs in a large gun safe and had a loaded 357 Magnum that was stored in its holder in the China Hutch located on the first floor near the kitchen and a loaded 9mm handgun hidden in Jeremy's nightstand on the second floor in the master bedroom. Okay, I'm not super familiar with guns. Is a 357 Magnum, is that big, like big and heavy, like bulky? Yeah, kind of. That's okay. just the size. It's .357 okay. inch. It's it's the caliber of okay. the gun. Is it bigger or smaller than a 9mm? It's bigger. It's bigger. Okay. So the 9mm is more of like a like a home protection type thing, like you, something you would hide. Probably, yeah. Okay. In the backyard, a police officer discovered a black pair of cotton gloves lying in the grass. The gloves were bagged and taken into evidence. They also discovered shoe prints going into the woods from the Simcoe's property. Inside the home, in the kitchen, officers found a 357 Magnum revolver on the kitchen floor and noticed that the door to the china hutch was slightly ajar and then an empty gun holster that presumably belonged to the 357 was empty. There were no marks or dents on the floor or the revolver to indicate that the gun was dropped by the intruder on their way out of the house. The revolver had five live cartridges and one spent cartridge in the chamber. Officers noted that this must have been the murder weapon since Jeremy had been shot once in the head. A kitchen chair had been knocked over and the purse that had been on that chair was untouched. A CSI team headed up to the second floor. They found two bullet holes in the hallway outside of the master bedroom. In the master bedroom where Jeremy had been shot, they found a 9mm handgun on top of the nightstand. The 9mm was missing two bullets. Lying on the floor near where Jeremy's body was found. This is going to be hard for me to talk about. (laughs) Lying on the floor near where Jeremy's body was found was a vaginal pump and spreader that was used in a sexual act. Oh, boy. It was just lying there in the open. The CSI team also found a ridiculously large rubber male member in the sink of the bathroom. (laughs) I'm very immature. I don't know. I'm going to laugh. Probably. (laughs) Oh, goodness. The house was also inspected for any signs of a forced entry. All the windows and doors besides the opened back door were secured and locked. The guns, casings, And marital sexual aids were taken into evidence. Oh, boy. Yeah. Officers also looked at the surveillance videos. There was no activity in the front or back of the house after Jeremy had secured all four of the dogs around 10 p.m. The police also spoke to the surrounding neighbors who said that they never heard the dogs barking at or around the time of the murder. After the home was secured, Officers were told that Juline was well enough to give her statement. Jeremy and Juline had a peaceful day together, spending much of the afternoon outside and canning pumpkin. 
After dinner, Jeremy went outside to lock up the dogs around 10 p.m. Julene indicated that she and Jeremy had both taken sleeping pills prior to going upstairs. They went to bed together at around 12 a.m. Julene woke up to Jeremy snoring and she decided to go sleep on the couch on the third floor loft. Julene woke up before 6 a.m. to the sound of a gunshot. She just assumed that Jeremy had shot at a coyote from their bedroom window, like he had done many times in the past. Since their dogs were chained up to their dog houses, they could not get away from the coyotes if they needed to, so Jeremy needed to protect their dogs from the coyotes. Juline walked down the stairs to the second floor and into the master bedroom to check on Jeremy and noticed he was still lying in bed. It was dark, so Juline felt for Jeremy's shoulder to try to wake him and touch something wet. She presumed it was blood. Why would she presume that? I don't know. Huh. That's okay. a big question mark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Juline heard a noise coming from the hallway that sounded like something had fallen and assumed it was an intruder. She grabbed the 9mm from Jeremy's bedside table and used the light from the alarm clock to disengage the weapon and fired two shots into the darkness of the hallway. After not hearing another noise, Juline called 911. Officers asked Juline if she and Jeremy had used the marital aids that night, and she said no, they had not. The toys were from a couple days before. Huh. They didn't want to put them away. So what I was thinking was, I'm glad they didn't have guests over that needed to use the upstairs bathroom. Why would they just have stuff like that out? Like just chilling for a couple days? I don't know. Just as a reminder? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, when you see pictures, I mean, these are large objects just right. like out in the open. That's the well, stuff that you but put. But they don't have kids and they True. have lots of stuff you know, security measures. So it's not like they have uninvited guests. Oh, that's true. So if someone did come, they'd have time to put things away, I think. Yeah, that's true. Right. But I mean, those are the kind of things that you like, you know, keep in a box under your bed or up in your closet. Yeah, I would assume so. Not just out and about. Julene was also asked if they had fought recently, to which she replied that they hadn't. Julene did tell officers that their barn had been broken into a few times and some equipment was stolen. That is why Jeremy had invested in all the security systems and guard dogs. Julene's account matched up with the evidence found on scene and the surveillance video showed nothing out of the ordinary. No intruder, no strange car, nothing. Julene was free to go. Officers were left with, linger with lingering questions. Why would somebody break in and kill Jeremy? It wasn't a robbery. Nothing had been disturbed. What was the motive? And why all the security, though? Just because yeah, the that... barn had been broken into a couple times? I don't understand the amount of security. That's not that unusual, though. Most people have cameras all over their houses now. We all have those and ring doorbell and, things. Yeah, minimum, yeah. Yeah. And then... Let's see what else they have. They have the dogs. People have dogs. People have um, dogs. And in a big, a big property like that, yeah. If we had a barn and it was broken into, I think the house would be covered in cameras, and I'd have something notifying, you know, some sort of sensor alarms. I just kept thinking, well, what are you, what are you hiding, or who are you hiding from? No, I get it. That's what I kept thinking. But if they break into the barn, then you could say, well, they'll probably break into the house, so we should take extra That's precaution true. and go overboard with them. 
On November 22nd, five days after Jeremy's murder, the Simcoe's house was broken into. Jolene had gone to the house to retrieve a suit for Jeremy to wear for his funeral. She noticed the front door had been kicked in and a fire poker had been used to try to break into the large gun safe under the stairs. $2,000 worth of cash was taken from the office. All the surveillance video was taken and there were absolutely no fingerprints found. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, huh. That's weird, right? A little bit. Yeah. The last thing I want to do is ever speak ill of a victim of one of our cases, but I am going to repeat statements that people who knew Jeremy well had said about him. Okay. Okay. All right. Jeremy was not very liked. Oh, boy. He tended to rub people the wrong way. Jeremy was described as a hothead. He tended to create enemies. Enemies with former employees and contractors. There it is. Jeremy would curse at employees and was loud, strict, quick to temper, and demanded perfection. With contractors, if things were not done to Jeremy's satisfaction, he would withhold payment or partial payment. But there was never any evidence that a disgruntled employee or former contractor killed Jeremy. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, just because sounds... you're not a good employer doesn't mean that you should die. Right. I mean, he sounds like he, he had kind of a rough, normal day. What? Is, what? <laughs> Meaning he's always like kind of angry and yeah, like wound tight. Yes. And that anything could like spiral him. Right. Anything could put him into a spiral. Yeah. Yeah. Anything could set him off. Exactly. That's what he sounds like. Mm-hmm. On November 25th, Julene threw an impromptu celebration of life get together. A local police officer was invited to the party since he had worked for Jeremy before entering the police academy. This officer overheard Julene tell another party guest, quote unquote, I'd like to tell you what really happened, but I can't. What? Hmm. Now, why would you say something like that? That's kind of stupid. I don't know. And the thing I'm learning about all of these cases is that people are dumb. (laughs) Not the victims, but like. Why would you say that? People that are being interviewed and people just keep saying things and it's like, shut up. Why do you keep saying these things that are just going to make you look like you're guilty? Right. Or you know there's more to it. You probably shouldn't say it. Right. (laughs) Although then what kind of a story would we have without this? Mm, Not much of a story. No. Sorry, I just took a drink. (laughs) It's okay. Okay. Happens. Yep. As officers were getting ready to call Julene in for another interview about the statement that was overheard, she lawyered up. Of course she did. Two days later, the warrant to search the Simcoe's business and personal finance records had come through. They learned that the couple was in deep financial trouble and had been keeping two sets of books, one for the IRS and one for their own personal records. The coroner's report had also come in. In the report, the coroner stated that a typical intruder would not shoot someone in such close range. And since the gun was only one to two inches from Jeremy's head, this person was either standing directly over him or in bed with Jeremy. 
So they think that Jeremy was laying on his left side. Whoever shot him would have to have crawled onto the bed or already be laying in bed with Jeremy and then put the gun up to his head only one to two inches and then shoot it. Yep, that makes sense. Okay. Forensic experts were unable to find any foreign DNA at the scene. The black gloves that were found in the backyard only had DNA from Jeremy and Julene. So that was their gloves. Gotcha. The footprints leading away from the Simcoe's property were never matched. Never matched with shoes from Julene or Jeremy or anything. Huh. It was also confirmed that the two gunshots in the hallway came from the 9mm gun found on the nightstand in the bedroom. So she did shoot that gun. Gotcha. It is presumed that the gunshot that killed Jeremy was from the 357 Magnum revolver found on the kitchen floor, but it cannot be proven since the bullet was never found. What? Yeah. Wow. It was never found. Isn't that so, crazy? But it went through him. It went through him huh. and never found. That's kind of weird. Yeah. There wasn't any blood or DNA on the weapon nor blowback from the wound found on the 357 Magnum, leading forensic, forensic experts to believe that the gun had been wiped clean. Huh. There was nothing on this gun. Okay, so I wonder if it's like in the movies where you put a pillow up against someone and shoot through it, and the bullet goes through, but you don't have anything coming back. I wonder if that... Oh. I don't know. That's but, smart. But put the, a lot of thought into it. Right. But the crime scene photos that I saw were the pillow that he was just laying on. Gotcha. But yeah, I never read anything about holding up a pillow or anything like that. Or but something, that's brilliant. something that would, it wouldn't stop the gun from firing, obviously. Right. But it would put up like a shield from splatter. Right. So you wouldn't have to wipe it clean right. or as much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because if it was just open back of his head, gun i mean it would be like a cannon hitting a watermelon right and it, it would, would be, be everywhere. everywhere and they didn't find any gun residue or blowback or anything on her hands yeah so that's smart huh maybe she used a pillow i don't know i just first thing that popped in my head wow okay but then where's the pillow where's so the there pillow? should be some there's no pillow some sort of fabric item with a hole through it right Oh my gosh, my brain is spinning right now. Sorry, okay. No, don't ever don't apologize for that. That's amazing. That is such a great All right. question. Yep. We should have this down too. So when we kill each other, it's going it to be, be amazing. Absolutely foolproof. <laughs> yeah. One of us will get away None, with murder. We will not make any of these mistakes. <laughs> right. So just be confident in that. Okay, sounds good. All right, you bet. <laughs> with no probable cause or evidence, Juline was never arrested. Dang. The small police force in the small town of Vermilion, Ohio, had very little time, very little manpower, and new cases were coming in every day that left Jeremy's murder to turn cold. Wow. Year I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Years passed with no new leads. Then one day, investigators received a phone call from two of Jeremy and Juline's friends. They had been concerned with Julene's attitude after the murder. She never seemed angry or even sad. Julene also got rid of everything that was Jeremy's, 
only days after he was murdered. So she got rid of his stuff like right away. That's unusual. Mm -hmm. After Jeremy died, Julene only ever went back to their home to retrieve his suit. So that one day that she found the house broken into to retrieve his suit was the last time she was there. Do you think the house legit was broken into? I don't know. I don't think so. Or you think it was I like think a it was staged. Up. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was staged. Yeah. Julene then sold the home, went back to school, began working in the medical field, and had a series of new relationships. Oh, cool. But that doesn't seem that strange to me. No. At all. She's just, she's moving on with her life. She was young. She was 31. Yeah. She's yeah. in her prime. Yeah. She is moving on. Not like us. No. God, no. What bothered their friends the most, though, was when they began thinking back on the couple's strange relationship. Julene was always very submissive around Jeremy, looking to him before she spoke, even around family. And Jeremy always seemed to be the one in control, the alpha male. Detectives decided to revisit some of the boxes of personal items they had collected from the Simcoe's home years before. One detective came upon a photo album at the bottom of a box. Inside were photos of Jeremy and Julene engaged in risque sexual acts, including bondage. And then there's that. They found pictures of Julene nude and tied up with chains in their basement with a golf ball in her mouth being used as a ball gag. She was a golfer. (laughs) Sorry. Investigators also found homemade porn videos starring Jeremy and Jolene. Not all the videos appear to be consensual, though. Jolene appears to be crying and in a state of distress. Oh, geez. I know. I know. Sifting through more documents, a handwritten 14-page master-slave contract was discovered. Oh, boy. Jeremy was the master and Julene was the submissive. All right. The agreement stated that Mr. Simcoe was the father and Mrs. Simcoe was the daughter. Boom. All right. Um, I know. We're about to get a little bit more uncomfortable. Okay. Well, that's kind of um, Fifty Shades of Grayish, right? Yeah, they... In they that, compare, oh it, my gosh, they compare this case to Fifty Shades oh, of Grey. Oh, okay, I was just assuming. So didn't they have, in that movie that wasn't very well done, wasn't there like a contract and all that stuff? Yeah. And she agreed to be that? No, I don't he, think she signed it. I don't really remember. Oh, I thought she did. Oh, I can't remember. All right, I was just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. it was very similar. They very much parallel these two relationships. Oh, gotcha, mm-hmm. okay. It outlined specific rituals and behaviors Julene was supposed to act out, including sexual acts she had to perform, her grooming habits, and agreeing to have her genitalia stretched and measured regularly. Oh, sure. Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> so that, to me, sounds like sadomasochism. If you don't know what sadomasochism means, it is the sexual gratification from the infliction of physical pain or humiliation either on another person or oneself. Gotcha. Yeah. Not into that. (laughs) Yeah, especially when she's Uh, screaming in a uh, video. Yeah. Mm. 
In BDSM, master-slave, or also known as sexual slavery, is a relationship in which one individual serves another in a consensual authority exchange structured relationship. Service and obedience are often the core values of master-slave structures. The participants are of any gender or sexual orientation and consenting adults. Males are called master and females are called mistress if they are the master. Right. Yeah. Okay. Assuming that's the Yeah, setup. if the female is the master, she is called the mistress. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. The relationship uses the term slave because of the association of the term with ownership rights of a master to their submissive body as property. Well, that's nice. Oh, I'm sweating. It's making me uncomfortable. Okay. In a BDSM context, it is a sexual fantasy or sexual role play. The relationship is a consensual exchange of power by the submissive to the dominant and usually has a contract that defines the relationship in detail. The types of activities a submissive or slave are expected to perform are sexual, but could also include housework or cooking. There you go. <laughs> so it could actually be useful. A bene- yeah, beneficial. Be- beneficial to beneficial. the to the situation. Right. The contract also states how the master would like their submissive to dress, their diet, speech restrictions, and whether the relationship is monogamous or polyamorous. If the relationship becomes serious enough, a master will then quote unquote collar their submissive or slave. If not a collar, then a piece of jewelry may be worn as a token of their dedication and servitude to their master. Okay, so... It's literally a collar, like a dog collar. No, so if I see a person out and about and they're wearing a collar, Mm -hmm. do they realize that's what it means or that means exactly this? Because I have seen that. I have seen people out and about, normal day-to-day and... I can remember collars. if it was a guy or a girl and one and someone was wearing a collar. Right. Was it a collar or a choker? Because sometimes no. chokers come like in and out of fashion. Okay. But I don't remember. No, I mean, like co- more, more like a collar. Like a collar, like a dog collar. Yeah, I mean, not like that. Like with a buckle? Usually they're like buckles or they have like those. I don't remember. Now, um, now it's ruining my I'm sorry. image. But I'm sorry. Something around the neck that isn't soft. Right. And they wear it all the time. Now, was Julene being forced to do these sexual acts or was she a willing participant? Was Julene being victimized again? A new forensic analysis of the Simcoe's home computer revealed that someone had looked up Julene's birth father's obituary the day before the murder of Jeremy. That seems suspicious. Yeah. That seems very suspicious. Okay. On November 14th, 2013, four years after the murder, detectives were finally able to formally interview Julene Simcoe. She retold the investigators what had happened the night Jeremy had died. They then asked her about the photos and videos they found. Julene told detectives that she was a willing participant and that to she and Jeremy, it was just normal role-playing and that it didn't happen all the time. 
Julene also said that she was not the one who searched up her father's obituary. Julene was free to go. Yeah, that was going to be my guess. So There's she was usually, a willing participant. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would I would have guessed it. Right. And the crying and the, you know, seeming uncomfortable or like she was hurting, that That's was part, part of the role playing. That's part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, which which to me, I mean, it still means that Jeremy at least was a sadomasochist. Yeah, but then I mean, if he got off on that, she wanted that. Yeah, she was into it, and he was. So I mean, they're a good match, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. Huh. Four days later, police learned of a new witness, a nurse who was on duty in the ER the morning Julene was brought in after the attack. She stated that she had asked Julene what had happened, and Julene replied, "I shot my husband." What? said the nurse, not believing what she had just heard. Julene then answered, somebody shot my husband. Oops. Well, which is it? <laughs> I don't know. Dang. Mm-hmm. On December 19, 2014, police felt they had enough probable cause to arrest Julene for the murder of her husband, Jeremy. Julene turned herself in. Julene's defense counsel felt that the case against Julene was entirely circumstantial and that an intruder had murdered Jeremy. Julene pled not guilty. The defense team believed she would not get a fair trial in their rural and conservative area, so they agreed to a bench trial. Oh, what's a bench trial? I'm going to tell you. Oh, okay, good. All right. (laughs) A bench trial is a trial in which there is no jury. And the judge decides the case. While a jury renders a verdict, a judge in a bench trial does the same by making a finding. So they could not get the trial moved to another county. So instead of that, they chose to do a bench trial because they thought they wouldn't get a fair jury because they knew that all the sexual stuff was going to come into play in the trial. And so you're dealing with a very conservative population of people. Right. Tuesday, September 12th, 2017, the trial began. Eight years after the death of Jeremy Simcoe, the state testified that there wasn't any evidence of an intruder and that only the Simcoe's DNA was found on the guns, in the house, and even on those black gloves found outside. Julie never took the stand in her own defense. On September 22nd, the case went to the judge for deliberation. So do you understand that the state is saying there is no evidence of basically anything? Right. Which then turns it on to Julene. Right. If it isn't someone else, it must be her. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's how they're proving it. Yeah. On October 20th, 2017, the verdict was in. The judge found 39-year-old Julene guilty of one count of aggravated murder, two counts of murder, two counts of felonious assault, and one count of tampering with evidence. The judge stated that there was absolutely no evidence that there was ever anybody else but the Simcoe's in that house. Yeah. It's almost math. Yeah. Aggravated murder is actually also called first-degree murder. It is the most serious type of homicide because it is planned and done on purpose with some type of evil intent. 
Gotcha. Okay, so she was guilty of one count of aggravated murder. Okay. Then she was found guilty for two counts of murder and then two counts of felonious assault. So felonious assault means cause or attempt to cause physical harm to another or to another's unborn by means of deadly weapon or dangerous ordinance. Isn't that kind of redundant? Like they already got her for first degree murder. Yes. So I don't know why all of these. Like, well, yeah. And then it's one count of tampering with evidence. Okay. If she had shot him in the back of the head and then cut all his arms and legs off, I would think that would also be secondary charge, right? Meaning it was beyond just pulling a trigger. Right. That would be more of like um, abusing a corpse. Well, it depends on which one happened first. Well, no, if you shot him and killed him. Well, what if she cut his arm off and then shot and killed him? Well, then that's something different. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a lot of. Seems like a lot of charges. A lot of charges. Yeah. Yeah. In the tampering with evidence, they think that she, you know, knocked over the chair and dropped the gun on the floor. I don't know. It's just. That's a lot of charges. And, and then left the adult aerobic materials laying out? Right. I would have put those that away. That seems odd also. It does. Like, why would you do all that and shoot him and then leave that out? Yeah. Right? N- yes. That doesn't make sense to me. Those are the things that you hide. If you were setting up a crime scene and you didn't want to appear to be guilty, I think I would have done a little better job. That's so true. And then all the pictures and the porn tapes. How were those so easily found? And why weren't those discovered the first time around? They were just in a box. So somebody must have seen those and thought, oh, this is relevant. This is interesting. I'm going to put these in a box. Right. Why not just get rid of all the stuff, get rid of the pictures, videos, and no one would have known. Right. Which means this was either a crime of passion where there was no time to think or she didn't do it. Yeah. So to have all of these charges, it just it seems a little overboard to me. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Well, I'm glad it does to you too. Hopefully it does to some Yeah, of it doesn't quite add up, but then not all cases do. Nope. That's why we consider ourselves armchair investigators. Sure. Trademark. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Julian Simcoe was sentenced to 28 years to life. She will be eligible for for parole in 2045 when she is 67 years old. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. She's going to be older. She's, uh, she didn't do it. That just is But if she awful. didn't do it, how did it get done? I don't know. See? Then it was an intruder, but an intruder who was like a Dexter. Oh, I think she shot him. Okay. I just don't understand her thinking. But then again... If you're sane and coherent, you probably wouldn't shoot someone in the back of the head. Okay, but what she could have done is she had the proof. She had photos. She had video. She had somebody looking up her father's obituary. So she could have said that she was not a willing participant and that she was being abused and that that was a crime of passion, that something had happened that forced her to shoot him. And she would have gotten... Yeah, you know, less and then than they would have. They would have argued. Then why'd you shoot him in the back of the head instead of in the in front? Like if he was attacking you or something. Right, that's true. But also, people would kind of understand more. Right. They that's would kind true. of give her the benefit of the doubt. Like, okay, he drove her to this, 
and he was such a horrible guy that she felt more comfortable shooting him in the back of the head. Yeah, and she and there, just needed him but gone. But there wasn't anything really that stood out that almost made me feel like she had justification for murdering him. No, but if she would have said, I was not a willing participant in this BDSM master-slave thing, then that would have given her more of a... True. Like, almost like an alibi, right? And it would have been a crime of passion. She should have thought this murder thing out better. But that's what makes it a crime of passion, is that it's not thought out. It just kind of happens, unfortunately. Huh. Okay. So I don't know. If this would have been more thought out, then she wouldn't have had those sex toys out, right? Probably not. Or marital aids. Sure. <laughs> and then she would have hid the the photo albums and the tapes. Yeah. I don't know. This is a this is a crazy one, right? I think she was into it hundred percent. I think she was into it. She admitted to it. Oh, and go watch when they interview her about all of this. It's she's very like upfront about it. She's wow. like, no, I was a willing participant. Like we did this together. It was we didn't do it all the time, but we had fun. And right. She's not embarrassed by this at all. I would think not. No, I think she did it, honestly. And I think the lack of evidence, the lack of DNA, the lack of everything, really. Yeah, I just don't understand why she did it. Yeah. I don't understand why she did it either. Are we rambling? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I'm telling you, this case is like... Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to solve it. No. Someone else already did, evidently. Nope. We don't get paid to solve these. No. We don't get paid at all. We just like to tell these. Right. All right. You ready for a fun fact? Yes. A study in 2005 states that 36% of adults in the US use masks, blindfolds, and bondage during adult aerobics. Really? And 10% have tried sadomasochism. Oh, okay. I'm sure that number is higher now. This is from 2005. And this yeah. was a study done by Durex, which is a condom company. Yes, yeah. And I think they need to do another study. Yeah, it's been a couple of years. Yeah, Durex, it's time. Let's do another study because I'm pretty sure that number has gone up a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm, definitely. All right. So, Daniel, what'd you think of my case? That was crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. Yeah. It really it is. Well, teach their own, I guess. Whatever trips your trigger, I guess, for them. Sorry. Is that <laughs> inappropriate? No, not at all. All I could keep thinking of was in a town like that where there's hardly anything that happens, mm-hmm. no matter what it is, you could always say it's one in a vermilion. Because it's for a million, it sounds like one in a million. Oh, my goodness. No? Okay. Oh, you keep me on my toes, babe. All right. If you guys want to get hold of us, you can reach us on Instagram, Till Death Do Us Part podcast. And if you want to do the email route, Till Death Do Us Part at att.net. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And we will see you soon. And be careful. For marriage is a life sentence. Bye. Bye.